So what I'm interested in is thinking about why organizations <coughs> in adversity is such a potent risk factor for leader poor outcome. We know that adversity in childhood um, and even in infancy is associated with increased risk of psychiatric disorder across the lifespan, poor educational attainment, reduced economic productivity. So we know that kids experiencing adversity in most recently age seven or eight are still earning less, less likely to have a mortgage, less likely to have a car in their mid-40s and 50s, even if you control for all of the other factors that might be relevant. And we also know that there's an association with physical health. <coughs> so there's several things one might um, say here. First of all, that this is not a deterministic relationship, that this is a probabilistic relationship, and many children who experience early adversity don't um, progress to develop uh, a slight mental health problem. And in fact, actually, it's a minority. But there does seem to be an additive effect of, of sequential um, ad adverse experiences over time. And the other thing which is really important to emphasize is that a mental health problem may not emerge immediately, that there often is a, a period whereby there isn't a clinical presentation. There may be subclinical levels of symptoms, but not uh, the emergence of a, of a diagnosable problem. So I've come to this area as a, as a clinician, working with children who've experienced maltreatment and becoming very frustrated um, working within a medical model where I tended to see children many years after they had experienced early adversity and they were presenting with severe and entrenched behavioral and psychological problems. And I really began to um, be frustrated at the lack of a preventative approach of thinking about how we might have helped these children much earlier on because the kids typically um, didn't receive any form of treatment until four or five years after um, a disorder emerged and only when they began to present with severe um, disorders. So a number of things, including that, um, has led us to develop this notion of latent vulnerability to really understand the link that um, Charlotte already described between early adverse experience and later um, psychiatric outcome and what might be the pathways or the mechanisms that might link those two different uh, phenomena. So how can early adversity embed long-term risk of psychiatric disorder? So this is a visual representation of the theory, and hopefully a little bit more digestible than the paper. Um, so you have the notion that the child is born into an adverse environment. I'm going to skim over the notion of gene environment correlation. I'm just highlighting here that the, the child will be born with a particular genotype that will confer some degree of risk or resilience to, to that uh, experience of adversity. The child needs to survive in that environment. They need to be able to negotiate typical developmental tasks. And the notion of latent vulnerability is that across multiple levels, as we've heard already from Charlotte at the epigenetic level, but also at the neurocognitive level and at the psychological level, a child adapts to those um, features of the early stressful environment that will allow them more successfully negotiate uh, the experience of being in a, cha a chaotic or violent family home. So those kind of adaptations, we believe, may have a short-term functional value. Um, as we'll see with hypervigilance, that might help the child detect threats at early stages in a potentially violent household, but it will also have a cost, um, a short-term cost, uh, uh, in, re in relation, for example, to reducing the cognitive um, uh, capacity to attend other developmental tasks, but also potentially a long-term cost in increasing risk um, of uh, 
disorders like anxiety. So this isn't deterministic. So these kind of latent adaptations may occur, but they only um, emerge if certain conditions apply. So a child, for example, who receives um, high levels of protective factors, they may have strong groups of support amongst their peers, they may have um, other um, adult influences, they may be removed to a different environment, which is more um, supportive. They may also have less uh, exposure to future stressors, no evidence of uh, future victimization, for example. They may also have um, a set of resilient genotypes. So these factors all interact in a way to potentially reduce the risk of a future disorder emerging. However, not all children are so lucky. They may not have the protective factors that may offset um, the early trajectory. They may um, be at increased risk, as we know, of future victimization, so they may experience future stressors, and they may also be less fortunate in the genetic lottery and have genotypes that make them more vulnerable to exposure to um, those stressors. And those individuals we can think of as the higher risk um, if experiencing a future disorder. So this is the continuum, but the, the notion here is that there is a set of adaptations that are latent insofar as that they are not manifest as a psychiatric disorder and that they emerge in the future following exposure to future stressors. So we think of this as a systems level approach and Charlotte described how we might think about this potentially at a um, at an epigenetic level, we have been focusing very much on the neurocognitive level um, and thinking about how these <coughs> a set of different candidate neurocognitive systems might calibrate to early adverse uh, contexts um, for reasons that may confer functional advantages. So as a clinician, it's important to emphasize that we think of latent vulnerability not as a set of pre-morbid symptomatology. This isn't looking at pre-morbid symptoms, are the children showing elevated levels of, of, of anxiety symptoms, for example, or hyperactivity symptoms? These could be things that are completely not within the, the diagnostic uh, framework. And a true marker of latent vulnerability must have a predictive value, and that is something which we are just now beginning to try and, and collect data um, in relation to. So a latent marker of vulnerability should predict the risk of future disorder. And it's only when we have that evidence of future predictive value that um, we will be able to just differentiate which markers are most um, relevant to a clinical context. So Charlotte's covered the epigenetic data already, and I'm going to um, cover uh, some work we've done in the neurobiological or cognitive domain. And by necessity, <laughs> I'm going to be leaving a lot out, and I'm going to just focus really on two different domains that we have um, been working on in the last few years. So the basic question is, well, how does brain function change or um, adapt after exposure to early adversity? So we can think of there being multiple candidate mechanisms that may be calibrated in response to an early adverse or risk environment in ways that increase the risk of psychiatric vulnerability. Um, and I'm going to focus most of the talk on threat appraisal because that's where we have most of the evidence across the different levels. But I'll also introduce the second one we've been studying um, more recently. So as Esty already introduced to you last night, children who've experienced physical abuse show a um, 
privileged processing of, of ivory bases. So these children need less processable cues in order to determine that um, a face is angry. They um, automatically attend um, more readily to ivory faces, devoting more attention and resources. And this is seen as a kind of a hypervigilant response to threat. So these kind of studies where you have these small faces that SE um, presented, children who've experienced physical abuse require much less perceptual information before they can say that's an angry face. So they're actually superior in performance in this regard than their typically developing peers. So here we have level of morphing at the bottom from zero to 100% of a given emotion. And here we have judgment and accuracy. And so you can see that children who've experienced physical abuse at very early levels of morphing are already starting to become more accurate than their peers in saying that's an angry face. And this seems to be particularly um, selective, so we don't see it for sad faces or happy faces. So there's something about um, a selective advantage in relation to angry faces. So this was work that had been done by Seth Pollock and Duncan Duchesne in the States, and they had published a series of very elegant studies demonstrating this. And it seems as of the first phase to start when they began to think about the neurocognitive basis of, of the impact of upbeating. And so when we did our first study, there hadn't been a single fMRI study of children who'd experienced maltreatment in the community. So it was a bit of an open field. Um, they were happy days where you could literally do anything and you would be the first person to do. So we thought, well, where do you start? Where do you start when you're, you're looking at a completely new area? And we thought, well, let's start with an area that from a psychological level has already been very well characterized. And that provided the, the rationale, really, for looking at threat processing in, in children. So we decided to employ a, a completely standard task that had been used in a wide range of other uh, domains, where kids simply saw a series of faces, angry faces, neutral faces, and sad faces, and they simply had to press the button to say, is the face male or female? And we were looking at the incidental processing associated with the emotional um, uh, content of the face. And as Essie already described last night, children who've experienced um, abuse. So we recruited children from social services, all of whom had experienced documented abuse, as well as a very carefully matched control group. All of the children in this study had experienced either physical abuse or exposure to domestic violence. So we predicted increased amygdala reactivity to angry faces in this group, which we expected to be a neural signature of hypervigilance. And that was exactly what we found. And we also find increased activation of the inferior insula, which, as he mentioned, is associated with anticipatory pain processing. So for some of these children, viewing an angry face is not only incredibly salient, but it may also be associated with um, the prospect of a painful um, experience, which is a rather sobering thought. And we found also actually that the activation of the anterior insula calibrated um, on a dose-dependent way with the degree of violence that was characterized in the home. So the kids who had higher levels of, um, of violent um, uh, homes had higher responses in the anterior insula. So this is a neural signature we see in anxiety disorders. Our kids didn't present with anxiety. So we thought, is this potentially a neural signature for, um, for risk of anxiety? And in fact, it was this study that set in motion our thinking about latent vulnerability. So we've got to latent vulnerability through um, this very data. Because these children were fine. 
they were doing well at school, they didn't have any clinical um, presentation, um, so ostensibly there was no evident problem with their presentation, but we know from epidemiological studies that these review children are at much greater risk of developing problems in the future. So this neural signature made us think, gosh, look, they look fine, they're not seeing any behavioural problems, but they do seem to be showing um, a pattern of neurocognitive um, um, signature that is consistent with what we see in clinically disordered populations. So our next question was whether this was a conscious process, how conscious are children about the need to attend to correct in the environment? Is this something which is under higher order regulatory influence or is it something that's more automatic? And so we studied this in uh, the second study we did um, to kind of follow up on the first and we looked at uh, what we call pre-attentive emotional processing. So basically processing outside of conscious awareness. And within neuroscience, there's a relatively established model with reasonable um, support that there are two ways for us to activate the amygdala in response to threat and stimulus. So there is a, a kind of a high road through the uh, frontal cortex, which is conscious in terms of um, perceiving threat and becoming um, uh, anxious or alert as a result. But there's also this subcortical route um, through the superior colliculus and the thalamus, where something like this crawling up our shirt or jacket would certainly wake us up um, after lunch. And it wouldn't wake you up by thinking, yes, it's actually, I'm glad it's having an effect, but I will move on in case it's causing undue distress to some. Um, so it's something that you will not notice and think, oh my goodness, there's a spider. Oh my goodness, there's a spider. You will have actually reacted um, at a subcortical level to that threat as a biologically prepared stimulus before you've actually had conscious awareness to it. So that's really the rationale for looking at a pre-attentive um, processing of threat. And our kids were really enthusiastic. You know, they were keen to come to university. We were really helping, um, they were really helping us understand about risk and resilience. And they were very enthusiastic participants. And then we put them in the scanner and we say, you know, we want you for the next 15 minutes to have a look at this cross. And then there will be a dot that will appear on the screen on the right or the left. And you just have to say, is the dot on the right or the left of the screen? And they come out after, afterwards and just, they look at these scientists who they think, you know, are doing some really exciting <laughs> research. And they say, right, so, you know, they expected, you know, some 3D interactive game. And this is what, you know, they kind of, they look rather sorry for you because they think this is really all you can do. And you think, yes, so sorry, guys, you know, we're doing our best. But what we can tell the kids after this study um, is completed, but we can't tell them beforehand, is that we're showing a subliminal presentation of facial stimuli prior to that decision. So they see um, a potentially an angry face that is backward masked, only for 17 milliseconds, as has been described, which is too short to have a conscious awareness of having seen a stimulus. So they see a flicker, and none of our kids actually noticed that there was a face, let alone a face of a particular um, emotional expression. So what we were interested in was whether this subliminal presentation elicited greater activation in the uh, amygdala relative to a neutral face. And that is precisely what we found. Um, we found that in the children who experienced physical abuse or exposure to domestic violence, they showed heightened amygdala activation to um, threat faces, 
um, angry faces um, relative to neutral faces compared to their peers, even though they had no conscious awareness of even having seen a face, let alone um, an angry face. So this suggested to us that um, these children, this is not a, a conscious process, these children are very automatically attending to potential cues of threats in the environment. So we want to know whether this is activity that's calibrated in response to um, environmental adversity. There may be reasons why this particular sample has heightened amygdala activity, but we can make no causal inferences because it's cross-sectional. And we can't uh, measure brain activation before and after abuse to say that that would be completely unethical. We always seek to avoid children being exposed to any form of diversity. But we can look at other populations and see how they respond to exposure pre and post um, adverse uh, contexts. So the study of soldiers has been used to look at how we um, adapt as adults uh, to the exposure um, of, a, of a threatening environment. So this was a study, um, this was our study, and Van Wingen and colleagues in the same year had published a study which was extremely timely for us, where they had scanned soldiers before and after being exposed to combat, and they gave the soldiers a very similar task, looking at neural responses, responsiveness to threat, and they found two brain regions showed increased activation post-combat, and you don't need to be a neuroscientist to see that these were the same regions that we had observed. So this was really, really um, good news for us in a way in helping us think about what our data meant. This provided some basis to argue that what we're seeing in our children is a perfectly functional adaptation that any of us may show if we're put into a, a, a challenging, threatening environment and that there's a generic biological system that increases vigilance. And these, these were the seeds of the latent vulnerability uh, model. We found that the degree of amygdala activation in our studies calibrate with the um, age of onset and severity of neglect and abuse. So kids who had abuse earlier um, and more um, severely had higher levels of amygdala activation. But our sample sizes are very small. When we looked at large community studies from other labs, so Danlowski, for example, um, had a large group of individuals who self-report on their history of childhood abuse and he looked at levels of amygdala reactivity and he found that those who were reporting higher levels of childhood abuse um, were the ones who showed the highest levels of amygdala reactivity. So this is suggestive of something of a dose-dependent effect such that the amygdala responsiveness seems to calibrate in line with the degree of, um, of, of threat that an individual has been exposed to. <coughs> So that's all very well and good, but it's a big step from that to start to say that somehow this calibration is in turn a marker of potential um, risk for future psychopathology. So we are undergoing, um, uh, we are undertaking a study at the moment, which is one of the first longitudinal studies that are following children up over time, and we have very little longitudinal evidence, um, like literally, I think, one study of any merit that looked at the ability of neural um, reactivity to predict future mental health problems. So we're very reliant on studies, again, of soldiers, which can follow up people um, over time. And the studies that have been done are very suggestive that a, a degree of amygdala calibration to threat seems to predict future um, mental health problems. So 
So we know that in this study, the level of amygdala activation before a soldier goes into combat predicts the likelihood that they will develop PTSD during combat. So those soldiers going into combat with the highest levels of amygdala activation are also the ones who have the highest level of PTSD when they come out of combat. So that fits with the idea that we've got a latent vulnerability factor, which if you add to the external uh, stressor exposure, will give you a disorder. And of course you might ask, well, who were these soldiers with the highest levels of amygdala activation in the first place? And I wonder what their childhood experiences were. But of course we didn't ask that. But that would be something we would be very interested in. And then more recently, Hariri and colleagues did a, a much larger study where they looked at a broad um, group of, of undergraduates and they looked again at amygdala reactivity and they looked at level of stress or exposure over a four-year period. And again, they found that higher levels of amygdala reactivity predicted higher levels of symptoms, but only in those individuals who were exposed to stress. So that's this red line. So this fits in with the idea of latent Amygdala reactivity in itself isn't associated with a mental health problem or mental health symptoms. You need the latent vulnerability factor plus stress or exposure to give you the increase in the um, level of symptomatology. So I'm kind of going quite quickly because I want to stick to time and have time for questions. So it's not all about stress processing and it's certainly not all about the amygdala as we might think from the various talks that we've seen on the brain, and I'm really keen not to study the amygdala, and I specifically designed a study where we hoped we wouldn't find it. Sadly, we did find it, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. So threat processing is only one candidate system. There are likely to be multiple neurocognitive systems that are uh, calibrated in response to early adversity. Autobiographical memory is the one I'm going to talk about a little more in a moment. We're also interested in emotion regulation, reward processing, and most recently, um, cognitive flexibility in terms of learning about a changing environment. So I'll just say a few things about autobiographical memory. I think I've got a few minutes left. So autobiographical memory is really interesting from a clinical perspective um, for these kids who often have very fragmented and traumatic lives. And for all of us, autobiographical memory is a key way for us to scaffold our sense of self. And it's understood as really the data that we've collected from the past that helps us simulate the future. So memory is there not to kind of have something nice to reminisce about when we're having a nice coffee somewhere um, on holiday. It's there to help us negotiate new and novel events and specify more accurately the contingencies that may be most adaptive in that context. So it's all about the priors. Children who have experienced maltreatment tend to show a pattern of overgeneral memory, so that when you ask them about the past, they tend to focus on a very general, categorical level of description, rather than describing details and particular events in time and space. And this, we believe, is because some of the traumatic material is aversive and as a result leads to a more overgeneral memory style, um, because it makes it less likely that some of the traumatic material may intrude. And we've been interested in autobiographical memory because this overgeneral memory pattern is seen in patients with both PTSD and depression. So this is unpublished data that we've submitted, but we found in our kids who'd experienced um, predominantly neglect, actually, a pattern of overgeneral memory, as we had predicted and consistent with previous studies. 
but we also find differential brain activation when these children recall positive and negative memories. So these aren't traumatic memories, these are just recalling general memories and from their past. Positive memories were associated with reduced activation of the hippocampus in particular, which we speculate may suggest that they have reduced representational specification of positive memories, and they immediately popped up with our negative memories. We had to have it as a region of interest, and as we um, might have predicted, negative memories are associated with higher amygdala activation, indicating that these kids are according higher salience to negative memories than their peers. So we think that these findings may are, are consistent with a possible candidate system of latent vulnerability. We think that this overgeneral memory pattern may reduce the ability of maltreated kids to draw on their past experience and negotiate future stressors effectively. And we know that um, OGM is associated with reduced problem solving generally. And we're following up a large, in a different study, a large longitudinal study looking at overgeneral memory in typically developing kids seems to be predictive of greater levels of um, peer problems, which fits with the notion that OGM has this general um, kind of function. But the other thing that may be at play, and we, we find it hard to differentiate between the relative importance of these things, is that decreased specificity and salience of positive memories, as well as increased salience of negative memories, may lead to or, or kind of promote a more negative inferential style, a ruminative style that we see in individuals with depression. Um, so these are two kind of possible um, ways in which this overgeneral pattern may predispose to a, a future disorder. So going back to this idea of, of my kind of clinical depression, uh, at the personal level of why we were seeing children really at a very severe level, um, I've been trying to develop an approach where we're really thinking about helping children before they reach this clinical threshold. So maltreatment may occur early in childhood, but we believe on the basis of our neurocognitive data, and we've been led to believe that changes occur at the neurocognitive level in advance of these mental health disorders emerging that should give us clues as to what um, might be the latent vulnerabilities that experience of future stressors may trigger in a way that lead to a, um, a frank uh, psychiatric disorder. But if we can identify these latent vulnerabilities early on, if there was a way to have a behavioral screening tool which could identify those children at greater risk of future mental health problems, would it not be better to shift our focus to a more preventative model where we're intervening at this stage um, in order to offset the likelihood that um, a mental health problem actually will emerge. And that, that is the focus of our kind of current um, thinking and actually we've just written a grant to start investigating that. But I'll know in a few weeks whether we've got it, so I'll let you know. Um, so just to summarize, we're learning about how early adversity can calibrate through um, Charlotte's work, an epigenetic system, but also from our work, a neurocognitive system that may reflect adaptation to early risk environments, but these adaptations carry long-term costs. We need to understand more about what specific neurocognitive mechanisms are implicated, because this might help us develop a practical tool that will help us identify those children at most risk of future problems, but that will require longitudinal design. Um, and it may also give us clues as to what a preventative approach might look like 
phosphamide is in field. Because we know from other um, domains that trying to intervene with somebody who has experienced a trauma but doesn't present with a disorder can actually make them worse. So that uh, we know from the whole field of debriefing following um, disasters. So we need to be very careful that we don't actually interfere with the natural defences and responses of the majority of children who actually fare okay following an experience of abuse or neglect. So we need clues as to what a preventive approach might look like. And of course the understanding of mechanisms more generally might help us understand how we might intervene with um, the disorders once they actually emerge. So that's it. Thanks to all the children and families who've helped us do the research and everybody at the Union of Women's Paper Equity Committee. Thank you for your knowledge of the work from the onset.